Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome to Buckeye Talk. It's the start of another week here on the Ohio State Beat at Cleveland.com. I'm Nathan Baird, along with Doug Maurice and Stephen Means. It is time for another big rapid fire segment here on the pod. We ask for your questions from our tech subscribers, 614 350 Three three one five. Hope you all had a fantastic Valentine's Day. How did Valentine's Day go for the Buckeye Talk crew? It was Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I've been married for twenty five years. I, <laughs> I I probably uh, what did I do? I got a mug. I got a mug. Actually, I buy I buy my kids a stuffed animal for Valentine's Day every year, and I got my wife a couple of Disney T shirts. So I mean, my life is exactly what everyone listening to this thinks it is. I got a <laughs> Disney mug. I bought my wife Disney t-shirts and did we eat chilies? We might've eaten chilies. I can't. So yes, my life. What's more romantic. I mean, what's more romantic than chilies. And at some point my wife looked over at me and said like, what am I doing? Why am I still with this guy? But hey, you know, it's, it's a pandemic. She doesn't have anywhere to go. So nothing from Steven. I mean, it's cold and it's a pandemic. So <laughs> I <didn't leave> now. <laughs> yeah, we, we made dinner at home and we exchanged gifts that were, is completely confectionery in nature. Like I got my wife a bunch of like candy things that she can eat because she there are certain things she can and can't eat, and then she got me a bunch of things that I can eat that she can't. So now we'll just be eating sweet things and rotting our teeth out for the next couple of weeks. Oh, that's very nice. That's very yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Sacrificing so that exactly. person can enjoy. But you're well, a newlywed. You're a newlywed. Yeah. Valentine's Day matters to you. Oh, no kidding. No, it's still it's still very fresh now. I'm sure someday we'll be in your shoes where it's just like just another day and you you sort of just trip past it and move on to the next thing. But uh, right now it, it's still a big deal. First Valentine's Day is a married couple, that sort of thing. I guess that's a big deal. But we're ready to talk some football now. And the first question we get, like I said, it was a rapid fire segment. We've got like, I don't know, 9, 10, 11 questions here that we're going to breeze through some football, some um, nonsense. We're going to talk basketball later this week. We got several basketball questions, but I think we're going to pinpoint maybe Thursday and do a, a bigger basketball segment that will kind of lead into the weekend. Ohio State plays Penn State on Thursday, plays a big game against Michigan, huge game against Michigan on Sunday. So 
Uh, if you're looking for basketball stuff, it's coming this week. Uh, but mostly today we're going to talk about football and things that have nothing to do with sports at all. Uh, and the first one up is, is from our friend Smokey Mango here. He said, just finished up the Al Washington pod. And I was slightly disappointed no one mentioned how diversity on the staff might affect or does affect the decision. Do you think it matters that one of three black coaches is staying on staff? Do you think they would have felt pressured or inclined to replace him with another diversity hire? Is it strictly best man up next? Diversity be damned. Would love to hear all of your thoughts. And I, I, that is a fantastic question. It's something that I think needs to be discussed in the context of whenever Ohio State makes staff hires. Obviously, the staff hire they made right before this, um, promoting Matt Barnes and promoting Parker Fleming, that only involved white coaches. It's a staff that already uh, only has a few black coaches. So I guess what I would – my answers would be, yes, I think diversity matters – Yes, I think they probably would have hired a black coach to replace Al Washington. I don't know if the fact that Al Washington is black was a motivation in bringing back Al Washington. I think that's just because they value him as a coach and because they could hire another black coach. I'm just saying that the fact that Al Washington is, is black is secondary to how much they value him as a coach. I got a lot of thoughts here. Why don't we let Steven go first, though, before I unload? Um. Nathan's right. It probably didn't have anything to do with why they wanted him back. But at the same time, I just don't think I mean, if, if, the, if the solution, if, if Al Washington would have left is to bring in another black coach, it just keeps with the status quo of we're going to have this number of black coaches and no more and no less at all times. So it's I mean, it, it, go ahead. I, I don't know. It's yes, it's important to have black coaches on the staff and it should well, be more than they have right now. And before Doug talks, I want to say I think hiring a black coach to replace Al Washington doesn't necessarily mean no more than that many black coaches, but it certainly feels like you're establishing no less. And I think they kind of are in that position where at some point you have to say, we have to have a certain amount of diversity on our staff. Um, so listen, I, I, that probably was a shortcoming by me in sort of leading that Al Washington discussion we sort of danced around it. Listen, of course it matters. I mean, it, it matters. This staff need every, every walk of life needs to be open and not just open to pursuing um, a diverse pool of candidates in every single hire you make, but also like being proactive in that. Right. And, and how do I say this? It's always there. It's always there. And it's just a matter of how much do we talk about it at a specific time the issue with Ohio State, and I just happened to have gone through this the other night, and I perhaps will write a large thing about this at some point. Going back to the Jim, when Jim Trussell was hired, since 2001, this is the number of black assistants that Ohio State has had on the football staff by year since 2001. We ready? This is from 2001 to 2021. Here we go. Black assistants. Two, 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 three, 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 two, 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 three, 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 three. The last jump to three is when they went to 10 assistants. So that's when that happened. They hire black assistants to replace black assistants. They do not have a diverse record of hiring when they are not replacing a black assistant and that's not cool they are not doing a good enough job on this and we the discussion is not do you get the best person or do you make a diversity hiring the discussion is 
every single opening must be proactive about having the widest and most diverse candidate pool of candidates possible because that leads you to the best candidate. It's the same thing. I, I, I mean, if you want me to go, I'll go. But when you just promote Corey Dennis and when you just promote Parker Fleming, you are not hiring the best person. And I can go through the list of black GAs and black quality control coaches that Ohio State has had over the years. And when your pool of candidates there is primarily white and now you are in the habit of promoting from within, guess what? You're promoting white guys. So you have to get out of we hire a black coach when we lose a black coach. And you have to get into every single opening. We are pursuing the widest pool of candidates possible. And that approach will lead us to the best, most diverse. And that's the same thing, staff out there. They had Mel Tucker. In 2001, they had Mel Tucker as a defensive backs coach and an assistant. He leaves. They hire Paul Haynes. Paul Haynes is here for a long time. When there's the crossover, they hire Everett Withers as a safeties coach. When Everett Withers leaves, they have Everett Withers leave. And it's the same time they have a, like a little bit um, of some other shakeup. Basically, they hire Vrabel and Withers leave at the same time. And they hire, so it's not a black coach for a black coach, but they hire Larry Johnson to replace Mike Vrabel. And they hire Chris Ash to replace Everett Withers. So you stay at the same number of black coaches. And then since then, it's Stan Drayton's the running backs coach. Listen, this is what happens. Black coaches get pigeonholed as running backs coaches. ESPN did a big story about this a couple months ago. Tim Spencer was the running backs coach for in 2001. He left. They hired Daryl Hazel as the receivers coach. Hazel was here. Hazel leaves. They hire Stan Drayton, who is a running backs coach, as the receivers coach because they're locked into, like, we have to hire a black coach for a black coach because they don't hire black coaches when it's a white opening. So then they have Stan Drayton, who's out of place as a receivers coach for a year. Then when Urban comes, Drayton slides back to running backs coach, and when he leaves, he gets replaced by Tony Alford. That's what's happened at Ohio State for 20 years. They practically have black openings and white openings. And the last time, like they almost never have a black coach get hired when the coach who left was white. So I, so what is that? So, uh, so we say, how important is it to keep out Washington? Well, when that's how you do it, it becomes extra important because they would they have three black coaches out of 10, Larry Johnson, Tony Alford, and now Washington. If Al Washington leaves, what, do you, what are they going to do? They probably are going to hire a black coach to replace him. But you know why? Because they didn't hire a black coach to replace Mike Yersich. And they didn't hire a black coach to, create, to replace Greg Madison. So all of a sudden, you create a world where it feels like you have to do something, Right to maintain what practically feels like a quota because it, it doesn't feel like on a regular basis with every hire that you are as open and as proactive as you should be in hiring from a diverse pool of candidates. So I was going to save that for July, 
because I'm working it because it's not good enough. And it's not about it's not about a raw number. Necessarily. But the outcome is the outcome. At some point, it is about the raw number. If you say, hey, we're, we have a diverse pool of applicants and you have 10 white coaches, then it is about the raw number. That's not good enough. I, it feels like to me they have not been good enough on this. And I think it's kind of – no, I don't want to say reckoning. It's time for them to be better. It's time for them to be better. And to me, the proof is black coach replaces black coach white coach replaces white coach. And that tells me something about your hiring process that you're not where you should be. That's and, and, and we should mention also that a lot of the behind the scenes, like structural guys also happen to be white. It's, you know, um, Mickey Marotti, Mark Pantone, like a lot of those other very visible, like prominent positions are white guys too. So that, that affects us. And, and Steven, I guess, I think your perspective here is important, not only because you yourself are a young black man, but you also are the ones who deals directly with the, the recruits the most and, and kind of getting feedback from them. So when you look at the balance of a, of a staff from a diversity standpoint, how much of it is from, from a social standpoint in the 21st century, you need to be hiring a diverse staff regardless. And how much of it is that is actually something that recruits prospects pay attention to as they are evaluating where they want to play. I don't know if it's, it's high on the list of, 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 because if that was the case, the more recruits would be going to HBCUs. And I mean, especially right now, but what Deion is doing, Deion Sanders is doing down there at Jacksonville state. You'd see more of that. So I don't know if it's, it's not necessarily a top five thing, but it, you notice it. I, I think Larry Johnson is a prime example of a guy who's been able to use it, it, Some of this is just his personality. I'm not going to, and also he's really good at what he does, but him also being black and being from the area that a lot of these kids he recruits are from, you know, it makes it a little, little bit easier to, for him to build a relationship with some of these recruits. Uh, Al Washington's probably the same way. So they notice it, but it, it's, I wouldn't say I I'll be interested when, there's a black quarterback coach who is held in the same regard that Ryan day and Oklahoma's head coach, uh, Lincoln Riley are held in as quarterback guys. Then I'll, that will be interesting to me because right now, I mean, right now it's a fight for black quarterbacks. And we're just now seeing that emergence at both the college and the NFL level. What happens when Byron Leftwich? what if he turns out to be the same? I mean, we saw what he just did with Tom Brady and helped him win the Super Bowl. What if he ends up being a high regarded quarterbacks coach and some college team, you know, picks him up as a quarterbacks coach or offensive coordinator for a year? He or he ends up being a head coach at a a, a decent program. I'm not saying not one of the powers that be, but a good enough program to where like they if they had a year where like an LSU type of program picks him up and four or five years down the road. Do you do we see black quarterbacks swing that way? Or do we see a high level of recruit swing that way. That's when I think this gets interesting is when, you know, it's not, it's, it's not necessarily just the players at that, especially at that position, when you see a black quarterback coach get held in that regard as well, that's when it'll be interesting for me. Well, you're already seeing that a little bit too, though, with um, Quincy Avery and kind of yeah. some of the things that he's doing there. And then they, and specifically trying to mentor young black quarterbacks. The, I right. Not, the, not that the he coach version of that. Mentor everybody, but I mean, he, he doesn't exclusively work with black quarterbacks, but that, that sort of dynamic is playing out a little bit there. I think Doug is right that I, I think this is something that we needed to touch on. That's why I brought it up here. I do think it's something that deserves more conversation than we'd give it on something like this. I just thought it was important that I don't think, again, as, as the person was asking, I don't think it's why Al Washington needed to stay at Ohio State or why Ohio State wanted to keep Al Washington. I think they wanted to keep Al Washington because of 
the coach that Al Washington is, not necessarily the race that Al Washington is. But I absolutely think it would have been a conversation in replacing Al Washington if it had come to that point. Like it would have had to have been a, a topic of conversation at that point. And it will be a topic of conversation when the next white or black coach leaves Ohio State, I think. What am I what do I want to say here? Listen, like it's this is an important conversation. Some listeners like when we talk about this, some listeners maybe don't like when we talk about this, but it's just a reality. And until the racial makeup of college football coaching staffs and NFL coaching staffs are in line with the racial makeup of the rosters, it will continue to be an issue. So we all know it's not close. It's not close to being in line. And so why is that? So I think, and it's not, here's why I think it's an important discussion for Ohio state, man. I, I don't, sometimes I don't, I don't want to, sometimes I don't want to say things because who I like on one, some level, like who am I to say it? I, I'm not trying to say like, I know, cause I'm just some dumb white guy, but stuff needs to be brought up. It just needs to be better everywhere. And, and I'm not trying to say that I, I think, to me, what is happening at a place like Ohio State that has a black athletic director, that just had a black university president, that Gene Smith's co uh, athletic director tree is incredibly diverse. Martin Jarmond is a, is a rising young black athletic director. Pat Chun is a rising young Asian American athletic director. Um, Heather Like is a rising female athletic director. Like Ben Jay was a, a, a is, is uh, a Pacific Islander, former athletic director at Hawaii that came from Ohio State. The, that, the administrative level of Ohio State is incredibly diverse, right? I mean, and their football coaching staff is not. So I don't, to me, my assumption is not that like Ohio State is um, like a bad guy in this. My assumption is more like Ohio State is perhaps like an unaware guy in this and that they maybe do have good intentions. But in this particular area, football coaches, I don't think they've done a good enough job. And I just think it's a matter of prioritizing it, being proactive about it. And I think they can and should and will do better. But I think they need to be reminded of it. That's all. And I, and I don't know what the, I mean, it's not good enough. It's just, it's not 30%. They've never had more than 33%. And, and if you count the head coach, they've never had more than 30% of their football coaching staff be black. Like that's not good enough. So that's all be better, be more proactive. And the reason why I wanted to include it was not because of just having a topic about um, social justice and equality and things like that. I wanted to bring it up because of the way the question was framed in that I think it does have an effect at some point on who Ohio State hires for the next opening. So maybe it wasn't a factor in obviously in who they hired to replace Greg Madison, but the next departure, it's a piece of the conversation. And I thought that's why it was important to bring up. I know there are people out there who don't like those conversations, but that's why it's an important conversation. It's not just a greater social conversation. It's specifically about the makeup of the Ohio State staff eventually. If I'm not mistaken, Ohio State had an assist, a black assistant coach, had three black assistant coaches, and they only had three white guys in their starting lineup this year. Tough Borland, Josh Myers, and Harry Miller. Everybody yeah. else is black, literally. 
So I mean, it's just it's just the reality. Or I mean, uh, or Polynesian, or in a high school Gary non-white. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah non-white. but you're just. I mean, it's just it's just facts. It's just facts. But but the other thing too is that I don't. And 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 to finish this off, and I don't mean to repeat myself, but yes, race becomes an issue in replacing Al Washington because of what they did with the previous hires. If you constantly just have, how many black assistants do you have? Five, four, six, three, five, right? It's just moving around because you're always open to it. Then when Al Washington leaves, it could be anybody. It could be a black guy, it could be a white guy, it could be a Polynesian guy, it could be an Asian guy, it could be a Latino guy. It could be anybody because you're not, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, now we only have two black assistants. Well, we better hire a black assistant. That's where it goes wrong. I think that's where it goes wrong because it's not about being open to diversity when a black coach leaves. It's about being open to diversity in every single hire that you make. And I think that's where they fall short. Well, let's move on to a more directly football topic uh, from the 614. Could we see Garrett Wilson move back outside to have Chris Olave, Wilson, and Jackson Smith and Jigba as the three starting wide receivers? We already talked about this a little bit. We did the offensive depth chart projections. And I think it's an interesting topic just because I, we need to start kind of framing what we think, again, what, what putting in perspective what we think Ohio State is going to do at receiver this year. I think my answer to this would be sometimes. I, I don't know that I don't know that this is I don't know that we need to look at these guys as being limited to any one particular spot. Right. Um, but I think those are probably as we start the 2020 season. Those might be my three picks to be the three best wide receivers. But would it surprise me to have Olave and Jameson Williams on the outside and Garrett Wilson again in the slot to start the season? I wouldn't be surprised by that. I think we're going to see a lot of interchangeable stuff at receiver this year. I think my answer to any question regarding Garrett Wilson in his third year here is just, is just going to be yes because of the options around him and his experience both outside and inside. So it's just yes. He can play outside and inside, and depending on who the other receiver on the field is, that's where he's going to be. And depending on where they want him on any specific snap. Well, let me ask this. How much of the, how much do you think the decision is based on what is best for Garrett Wilson and what is best for the Ohio state offense versus who is the next best receiver, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like is Wilson's flexibility more based on how good Julian Fleming is compared to Jackson Smith, the Jigba. If you think JSN's in the slot and Fleming's outside, or do you have to establish this is how we want to use Garrett Wilson. And then everything else plays off of that. I think if Chris Olave wouldn't have come back, the answer would have been the latter. It's just been, this is our best receiver and we're going to find a million different ways to get a mismatch on him so we can get him the ball. I think Chris Olave coming back kind of tempers that I'd still think they're going to do that. I still think they're going to put Garrett all over the place to find different mismatches for him and do everything else and above. But because you also have Chris Olave on the fo- on the field with you, you can be a little bit more can cater it more to okay, who is developing a little faster behind as the, the third best receiver, whether it's JMO, whether it's Jackson Smith, the Jigba, whether it's Julian Fleming, whether it's G Scott, who just you know takes a major jump in this spring. I think you can cater to that part of it a little bit more because you know you still have Chris Olave as the other outside receiver. So it might be more 60% because we want to use Garrett in all these different ways and 40% whoever the third best receiver is, while it probably would have been more 85% to 15% had Chris not come back. I mean, to me, it, it makes it more intriguing, the development of both 
who is the third and fourth best receiver, because then that's where I think you really get to make Wilson something lethal. Like there's one opponent that you're matching up against that you feel like he can really shred them inside. And then the next opponent, maybe they're stronger inside and you feel like he can really do damage outside and you can, it can be interchangeable like that. And it can be interchangeable depending on what defenses are showing you from, from series to series. I also think there's like a scenario where like, instead of trying to like divide the receiver spots in half, right. In a rotation, I've been trying to like do some fractions here fractions fractions are tough man i kind of like fractions but also i'm i'm confusing myself already i was a decimal guy <laughs> he's right, right Texas, for decimals take your make a stand <laughs> fractions or decimals yeah that'll be an odd that's a june pod it'll be the math bracket for god for instance like if you think of the receiver spots as being divided into quarters instead of halves right say chris olave is an outside receiver spot like three quarters of the time right well what if garrett wilson is in the slot like half the time and on the outside one quarter of the time and so that gives jackson smith and jigba like half the slot and then it gives like you know, Julian Fleming and G Scott can each have half an outside and Olave has three quarters of an outside and Wilson has a quarter of an outside, right? That Wilson and Olave play the most, but you can maneuver a little bit with it. I think it might be something like that. And again, it's even so, some of these things. It's like when they line up, it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, in this formation, um, you know, Julian Fleming's up top. Wilson is on the outside down below and Olave's in the slot inside Wilson. Like that happens sometimes, but I do think there's a world where um, Wilson plays everywhere, both in service of getting Smith and the Jigba some more slot snaps, but also in service of like, this is best for the offense. So like if Olave is basically an outside guy, Wilson's like two thirds outside or two thirds inside one third outside and then Fleming and Scott and Smith and the Jigba and everybody else sort of move through that. There's a lot of options here, but in the end, if, if Garrett was outside as a freshman slot as a sophomore, I think junior year is a mix of that. I think what the mix is, I'm not sure, but I, I would guess it's a mix. I know they've got the X and Z are there two outside receivers and pretty much the only difference is one's usually to the boundary. One of them's to the sideline. That's the only real difference, but in the name you said with fractions, what if Garrett's quarter on the outside is just him rotating? He's just on the field in that in Olave spot when Chris isn't on the field. Yeah. I don't think he's that. Cause I think Julian Fleming is a, is a fits right in. Yeah, with, I'm, in, I'm behind Olave at that X spot. Yeah. Um. So, but again, and as and Stephen, you said this a lot. It's like you know, I mean, X and Z and slot matter, but also they want them all to be able to do everything. And and it does come into sometimes it's right. It is boundary and field. It is who gets one on one coverage more often. It's who might be in motion a little more often from Z. I mean, there are some things that fall into it. But um, I do think Julian as sort of like Olave's backup makes a lot of sense, but also they're going to move guys around. Right, because they moved Austin and, and Ben. The, well, they moved Austin just so they could have those two guys on the field together in 2019. And, we, I mean, 
Julian Fleming's ceiling is clearly higher than what Austin Ackerman Victor's was. Could that happen? Could G Scott, we didn't see enough from him last year. So I don't know if we can confidently put him in this conversation yet. Could they move Julian and just rotate him with uh, JMO on the other side or G Scott and Julian? I mean, I'm just throwing out options that I'm sure Brian Hartline is thinking about. I would also caution people not to limit Jackson Smith and Jigma to being only a slot receiver. Yeah. Well, I do think more often than not, the younger guys sort of stay at a spot. I actually think it's Mm -hmm. more likely that, okay, if you want Julian Fleming and Chris Olave on the field at the same time, you just let Fleming be the X and it's Olave who all of a sudden is playing and whatever. And that, yes, I think Jackson Smith, the Jigba, but if you want Jackson Smith, the Jigba and Garrett Wilson to both get snaps, I think it makes more sense to move Wilson around and let Jackson Smith, the Jigba kind of just be the slot. And then when they're juniors, then they can move around. I mean that to your point, Stephen, like, yeah, they did move Austin Mack around when he'd been here forever. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think they keep, they try as much as they want versatility. I think they do like to let the younger guys sort of really learn a spot and let the older guys be flexible. Makes more that yeah actually makes more sense. I think Larry Johnson had said that one time. You want a guy to to just learn that role. You don't want to throw a million things at him. You just want him to be able to master that. So I think that makes a little bit more sense to, especially with Chris being back for a fourth year when he probably didn't have to be. I mean, if he can show you show the NFL, he can play another spot. I mean, that just adds to you know his value at the next level. But you could have Chris Olave at X, Garrett Wilson at Z, and Jackson Smith, the Jigba in the slot, or you could have Julian Fleming at X, Chris Olave at Z and Garrett Wilson in the slot. You know, I, I do think Wilson Olave both will give you flexibility to do what you need to do with the younger guys behind them who you want to get on the field. Here's a different kind of football question from the 440. How many Super Bowl trophies would it take for you to feel comfortable throwing one over the water during a boat cruise? My over-under is three. If people didn't see this in the uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers celebration, Tom Brady's chucking the Lombardi trophy around like he's, well, I guess like it's a football. And um, the, the, the I think like I saw the granddaughter of the woman who designed it came out and had this very tearful like, uh, I can't believe he did that sort of thing. I think my answer is zero. I don't think I'm throwing a Lombardi trophy around regardless. Um, it's just funny to me that the, the way that like your brain works when you're Tom Brady and you feel like you can just toss it around. We've had, you know, it wasn't that long ago. We, we saw what happened with uh, Wisconsin celebrating with it, it. All they were doing was just basically like doing a little jig with the trophy, um, not the Lombardi trophy, but their, their bowl trophy in it shattered on the floor i thought maybe that'd be a cautionary tale but apparently that that didn't get to tom brady are you making do you like do people want me to be an old guy be like don't be throwing your trophies around because i'll do it here's here's what i generally think about that stuff the, and the trophy listen I, I, whatever it's just a trophy and it's not as good as like i mean it's not even a great trophy i, a I football like ball on a stick i mean it's not it's not a great trophy it's good it's not made of crystal, though. But I have not liked the, oh, man, we love being in Florida. We finally can be ourselves with Bruce Arians. Oh, Bill Belichick was so mean. He didn't let us be ourselves. I hate that crap. Because you know what Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski, you know how many Super Bowl rings they would have if they were with Bruce Arians in Tampa their whole career? Like two. Tom Brady wouldn't have six with New England. 
because this happens in life all the stinking time. It's like, why do you think they were so successful in New England? Because they were united as a group who did it a certain way, a very serious, hardcore way. And then they were like, ah, oh, Bill Belichick had us in straight jackets. I just want to go party on, the, on a boat. You know how many Bruce Arians was a head coach for seven years before this season? One, two, three, four, five, seven. You know what his playoff record was before this year in his first seven years as a head coach? One and two. He had one playoff win in seven years. I love Bruce Arians. He's my guy. Bill Belichick kind of frowns. So I, I hate it because everything you did when you were serious and you handled your business a certain way set up this opportunity for like football retirement where you also win Super Bowls. So like Bill Belichick would not let you throw the trophy. So I don't care about throwing the trophy and I don't care about the lady who was like, my grandpa made a thing out of silver. I don't care. But I don't, I do push back against because this happens in life. This happens in journalism. There's a lot of people who have like a great job and I do a great thing for a long time and then they leave it and then they go to like a different place as a winner. They've acquired this aura and this way of winning. And now they take that with them. And now they're like, oh, the new place is so much better than the old place. Everybody at the old place was a fart. And everybody at the new place is cool. And it's like, you'd be nothing without the old place. So to me, the trophy toss was an, was an indication of that. And that attitude, you can cram up your cram hole. Because when I leave Cleveland.com someday, and I'm sweeping up, Gum wrappers at Disney World. I'm not going to be saying, oh man, Disney World's so much better than Cleveland.com. I'm going to say this is different, but Cleveland.com was awesome. And everything I have is because of Cleveland.com. I'm not going to take shots at Cleveland.com. So throw your trophy. Just don't be a jackhole about the success you had previously. So seven. Yeah, it'd be seven. seven's the answer. Yeah. Once you get the seventh one, you can yeah. start chucking. What, yeah, once you do what that what Doug just described, and you go somewhere else, when you yeah, seven of them. He gave the trophy to like his young daughter. I saw there on the award stand the night of the Super Bowl, so it's not that heavy of a trophy. Like so. the trophy is bigger than she was, and she was carrying it around. So, um, my answer is still zero. And with that, we take our first break. Uh, coming back, we are going to talk a little bit about uh, college football coaching. We're going to talk a little bit about writing a book. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, feats of strength on the Buckeye Talk staff. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. All right, we're back on Buckeye Talk. This is a question from the 614, and it goes back to the uh, dynasty discussion that we've had recently. Does OSU have any hope of rising to meet Bama's program-level dynasty, even if Alabama has to decline a bit while OSU rises? That feels like the final unconquered frontier. The Buckeyes have gotten the single-season Bama monkey off its back in 2014, but Saban has three championships since OSU's last. Clearly on another level, and that's the level I've been hoping Ohio State would achieve since Urban was first hired. We've had this kind of conversation in, in, from multiple angles, but I thought that what this kind of introduced here was maybe a what is the level of fan satisfaction with being where Ohio State is right now, which is you're the level of a team that can beat Alabama. It wasn't that long ago that you could beat Alabama, but clearly you are still that notch below. And I don't even think that was necessarily demonstrated just by the national championship game as, as the 614 texter is saying here, 
it's more about the fact that Alabama has been still piling up these championships um, at a time when Ohio state, it's a, it's a lot more sporadic. So is that what, what is happening with Alabama right now? Is that still something that is unachievable for Ohio state? Should Ohio state not even think about that? I know we talked about that a little bit in terms of should Ohio state never worry about having the number one recruiting class. But I think this is a different question. Should Ohio state just never even think about trying to do what Alabama does as far as just being this dynasty that conquers the sport. Steven, you're the one, like you do our weekly Alabama Clemson Ohio State thing, uh, or at least you did during this past season. When you are writing that, are you thinking that, does it feel like something where Ohio State, and maybe even Clemson to some extent, but certainly Ohio State, is chasing an unattainable standard? No, and I'll just use this season as an example. For a lot of the season, I when we were talking about things that we were concerned about with Ohio state and just analyzing this team, the way we do, I didn't feel like that conversation that we were having about Ohio state was any different than how people should view, should have viewed the Alabama team and the Clemson team at the time. Now this is obviously before Devonte Smith ended up being a high a legitimate Heisman trophy candidate, but the idea that, explosive offense with a decent enough defense that's still going to give up some points is where Ohio, all three of those teams were. So uh, it's just Alabama was just awesome that night. And uh, Ohio state's offense wasn't awesome that night. I feel like Ohio state is at least headed down that path and the recruiting matters. I think now that they're competing, it's not, they were having top five classes before and they had two number two classes before, but now I, I don't know why, but for some reason it feels a little bit more, uh, attainable to actually knock off Alabama and get a number one recruiting class. And I think the the way they're going about it is probably why, but I I don't think they're that far off. It's, it's maybe a a recruiting class here and, and, you know, constantly being a playoff team, I think is the next step for them and not having that one loss that keeps them out of the playoff. And in the first two years of Ryan day, we haven't seen that yet, but that's not that, that doesn't, you're saying they're not that far off from, from what, because, what they're asking is a thing where you win like five national championships in a decade. That's the Alabama standard is there's still yeah, a long way off from that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's attainable. That's not how you should look at it. It's are you playing and competing for a national championship every single season? I think the idea of actually winning the national title five times, that's, that's not a reasonable thing that that's, that wouldn't have even been a reasonable thing to ask Nick Saban to do when he got to Alabama. It's just, you happen, you got to the game and you just happened to win it. But the idea of getting to the, getting to the playoff and being in a position to raise a trophy every single year, that's a more reasonable expectation to have for any of these top tier programs. Okay. So I'm going to answer this question two ways. One is that, and this feels like a story or a series or a summer long project. I think you could argue that Ohio state is in the best spot that a sports team can be in. And we've kind of talked about this a lot over the years. They are a bully locally and an underdog nationally. And that is a wonderful spot to inhabit because during the regular season, you kick everybody's butt. Everybody hates you. You're the big dog. But then when you get to the national scene, there are no assumptions, right? And it does and I people push back against this, but like Bama, it's like, if you don't win the national title, if Bama doesn't win the national title, it's a little disappointing. Like they're so good. They've won it so much. I don't think any Ohio state fan is at the point where you are truly, truly disappointed. If you don't win the national title, 
sometimes we do talk about national title or bust, but they haven't won enough to really be at that point. Bama's there, right? And sometimes it's not quite as fun. They're on top of the mountain. Sometimes it's not quite as fun to be on top of the mountain and trying to hang on by your fingernails as it is to be climbing the mountain. Ohio State, in a lot of ways, is still climbing the mountain. So they're on top of their own mountain, and then they're climbing the national mountain, and it makes for a wonderful fan experience. Like if you gauged like the week-to-week happiness or the end-of-season happiness or something of an Ohio State fan versus an Alabama fan, I don't know, man. Like I think it's possible that an Ohio State fan would be higher because I think there might be such angst around an Alabama fan that I don't know if they appreciate anything other than like, we got to win it all, we got to win it all, we got to win it all, we got to win it all. And I just don't know that Ohio State fans are quite there. I don't think they should be there if they are, right? Do you guys sort of know what I'm saying there? That this is a unique, unique spot to be as absolutely neck-stomping dominant as they are in the Big Ten but still sort of have the fun of, and Ohio State embraces that underdog role, have the fun of being the underdog on the national scene. Now, at the same time, Alabama has a season where they lose two games and don't even make the playoff and then come back next year and just flatten the sport again, kind of. So that's the other, that's the other aspect of being an Alabama fan is I think there's more confidence that the next dominance is right around the corner than there is even if you're an Ohio State fan, right? For sure. But I guess like, what is the enjoyment level of that? I don't know how sick right. Alabama fans were when they missed the playoff for the first time ever in the playoff era. They miss it. I, were they, were they vomiting? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Three months. I, and there, I, like, and there I were circumstances, questions. right? It's like, there were, there were circumstances, like, right? Yeah. Injuries and, and things have played into that. It's almost like a survey question that you should ask Alabama fans. Was 2019 fun for you? Yeah. I mean, like it might've just been like, horrible that I, I i just think ohio state fans are just able should be able to enjoy like almost every aspect of all of this which is sort of what i'm saying so the second thing is this i guess is the question kind of like could ohio state be a dynasty right could it could they ever be right now what alabama is is that the the heart of the, this part of this question nathan and a dynasty of, of Alabama's level, which I think is also right. different because we talked about before we had the dynasty podcast where we defined what that would be. And in, when we were defining what a dynasty would be, it was not what Alabama has done. What Alabama has done exceeds that. So I would say, yes, I think they could. Now, will they? I mean, it's the highest bar, but I was just looking at USC real quick in the Pete Carroll era. And I guess by by the Alabama standards, they wouldn't have been that. But between 2002 and 2008, they went 11 and 2, 12 and 1, 12 and 0, 11 and 1, 11 and 2, 11 and 2. They finished in the AP rankings 4, 1, 1, 2, 4, 3, 3. Right? Like that was sort of like that's pre, that's pre rise of the SEC or like right at the beginning of the rise of the SEC. But I do think that Ohio State with a younger coach, now that you've gotten, it's not Urban, and Urban is a little younger. Urban's younger than Saban, but it's a little more generationally with Saban. Ryan Day's in a different generation than Saban. And if you're saying to yourself, when Saban's done, and let's maybe, I think it's, I think it's a fair assumption to assume maybe they won't be able to sustain it quite to that level, right? That, I mean, even if they get Dabo, I mean, Saban's one of a kind. Who would be positioned to uh, ascend to the Alabama spot in college football when Saban retires? I think Ohio State is absolutely as positioned as well as anybody. 
I think we have conditioned ourselves to believe that it has to be an SEC team. I don't think that's true. I think USC is proof of that. I think the way Ryan Day is recruiting, what we've talked about with the offensive style, that they can get national guys, the constant debate about do you want your conference to be tough or not so tough. I do think, now, not with Saban at his peak, nobody else can be that, right? But if either Saban retires or if Saban, as he gets older, just loses a step and Alabama comes back to the pack a little bit, who could be next? If you were, if we were doing Vegas odds, who is other – If so you can't pick Alabama because they already are. Who is most likely to be the next college football dynasty after Alabama? And you placed odds. This, again, is a version of our – tier discussion it's the alabama clemson ohio state discussion which is basically the number one discussion we have on this podcast i might i might put odds on ohio state even higher than i would clemson you know just but they are absolutely i think it's possible like if you come back and say hey between do you think it's between uh 2025 and 2035 could ohio state win five titles yeah i think they could now, because it's going to be the playoffs going to open up, because, again, as we said before, the hardest thing for them has been getting in a lot of times. Once you're in, they're going to have the quarterback. They're going to have the offense, right? Your defense has to be good enough. But they are they're going to get in, and then once you're in, they're going to be the type of team that wins because the style of play. Their, their defense is better than Oklahoma, but they are going to be a quarterback-receiver offensive factory. And that's what wins. So, yes, my answer is, can they be a Bama dynasty? Yes, they can. Will they? I wouldn't. I'd say it's less than 50-50 chance that they will. But can they? Absolutely, they can be. That The best era of Ohio State football in its history is very possibly still in front of us. I like the USC comparison better. Um, just because it just sounds a lot more realistic than what Alabama has just done. But but now but but it, then we're just splicing hairs about whether you win your national title game or not, right? I mean, like that's yeah, the- which is why I, this is why I said it, is it, it, is the idea to actually win five national titles or just to be in a position to win five national titles? But do you think is your claim here that like there is something particularly special about what Bama has been in terms of its talent and its coaching that has allowed it to be not just close but win the titles, or is it they've just been a little lucky because you get in the title game and then do you win or not? It's a little lucky because that, okay, yeah. then, then I don't particularly find it to be an interesting discussion because then it's like, all right, well, you're right there. Did you win the national title or not? I get this a huge distinction. Nobody counts how many times you finish second. But then, if we're just problem. talking about are you lucky enough to win when you get to the game and we're not talking about there's something particular about Nick Saban's preparation. There's something particular about their depth of defensive talent. There's something particular about their receivers who have made big plays or whatever. If we're not talking about that and we're just talking about sort of like the coin flip nature of when you get to a title game, then it is what it is. Yeah, I I think the discussion of the depth and all that is just about getting there. That's all I'm saying. See, I think think there is something special about saving because I think what this question does and these discussions do is, is frame exactly what Alabama has been here recently. Alabama hasn't just just been a dynasty right Alabama's been something closer to what UCLA basketball was or Boston Celtics basketball was or the Yankees of the early 
mid nineties or the Montreal Canadians. Like it's almost one of those dynasties at this point, right? Almost to a level that like nobody can really reasonably attain. I just think it's hard to put that on one game of that's what made it special is because they won that one game. Because I mean, it's a couple of those championship games that they were in were literally a play away from being the other way. I mean, two us, but they the, won it. They got there they, and they won it. Right. But I, I, I just think when you're going to analyze it, it's got to be more than just because they won that night and they were the better team that night. It's everything that led up to be, them being in the position to be in, to win that night. But people count titles. People count titles. Yeah. So, and like you were just going to say, it's about Tua. Was it USA? It's about Tua. It's about that, that. I'm talking about just that one play or the fact that they didn't win it because Deshaun Watson found Hunter Renfro in the end zone and uh, at the end of the, at the end of the game, like that type of stuff is, that's not necessarily, you know, that, that has nothing to do with why they were in that position in the first place. That's just, that's that just decided who actually ended up winning the game. Okay. So I think that, I think that the nut of the discussion then becomes, how vital is the legendary coach in this? It's one of those things like, did UCLA win 11 straight because John Wooden like collected the greatest talent and then the talent just won? Or would the talent have gotten them close? And like every time they got over the top, some chunk of that is like John Wooden got it done when the chips were down. Is some chunk of it that Nick Saban got it done. Nick Saban pulled his starting quarterback and put Tua in when the chips were down. Was Joe Torrey... All right, the Yankees had all the money in the world, but did, was Joe Torre the exact guy to manage all those Yankees' egos and make the right moves with the pitching staff and do the right things that made the Yankees not just be good, but get over the top and win again and again and again and again? And if you believe that is Phil Jackson. All right, well, Phil Jackson had Michael and Scotty, and Phil Jackson had Kobe and Shaq. All right, well, that gets you close, but was it something about Phil Jackson and the way he managed that and then in the moments that got him over the top? If you believe that the thing that gets you over the top, the talent gets you there and keeps you there consistently, is it the coach that helps you stack titles? Then the question is, is Ryan Day an all-time coach? Bingo. So that's, that's, a, that, that's a different question than can Ohio State – be a dynasty that's can ryan is ryan day the guy that helped ohio state do it well that is the next question it literally is the next question joel and phoenix here if you could have any coach in the country to lead a program for the next decade who would you choose i guess you'd expect this answer from a buckeye fan but i choose ryan day saban's getting old dabo is great a weasel but great but i think day is climbing and continuing to evolve and has not hit his ceiling yet so that i guess that is the crux of the conversation right like it's that if it's not an institution, if it's the person leading it and the person bringing it all together, does it take someone special to be able to do what we're talking about in terms of what Alabama and Clemson have done? And is Ryan Day that guy? Like, so I, who else? Who else should even be in the conversation besides really those three guys? I mean, Lincoln Riley gets right tossed in, but I mean, I think. So here's Lincoln Riley I, needs to win a playoff game. Yes, yeah, yeah. For what can, for everything no you argument. just described, Doug, like Lincoln Riley has not been that in that moment. No argument. No argument. I mean, you're right. So, but I think you're I mean, I think you're probably right that there there isn't anybody else. Um, and so I think so there's like the cultural part. I think the cultural stuff maybe is what keeps you going, right? And then recruiting that like you're a place 
where you have a way of doing business, you have a way of attracting people, you have a way of motivating people that that keeps you from getting stale, that keeps you from taking things from for granted, and that that gets you there. But then I do think that probably in the moment there is some offensive ingenuity stuff, and I think people think Ryan Day is good at that stuff, that you make the right play call in the moment against a great team with equal talent. Or you, there's something about your scheme. There's something about a play that you've saved. There's something about – now there's motivational and cultural stuff that goes into a national title game too. Um, you know, I think people thought maybe that they didn't get an A-plus for their scheme against Bama, right? I mean, I think I think that's probably – where, where people are right now, both sides of the ball, frankly, right? I mean, like, for whatever reason, like, Justin Fields didn't play his best games. Coming off Clemson, it is like, this is it. They, they, they culturally geared up for Clemson all year, and then in the moment, from an execution standpoint and a scheme standpoint, checked every box. That was culture and execution of a game plan. And that's the kind of game that makes you think, I'd take this staff and this guy and give me them for the next 15 years and tell me they get six titles in 15 years. And I believe every bit of it. And then you get to Saban and it doesn't look so good. Right. So I I don't know where people are with that, but I do think it does feel like, okay, culture, recruiting, offensive ingenuity scheme. I mean, it does feel like Ryan day right now to two years in what, what box doesn't he check? What well, box here, doesn't he check? Here's what I'd ask. So the question is, if you could have any coach in country to lead a program for the next decade, who would you choose? So I guess my question is, if you were going to just give a coach, have a coach take over, let's say, Missouri. I'm trying to think of just a bland school somewhere. NC State. Which of these guys, if you gave them NC State, could get NC State to a national championship game the fastest? I don't think I have enough evidence right now to say it's Ryan Day or either of those two guys. Well, but we don't have evidence, but who is? I mean, like, who? Like, well, I mean, Sweeney, Dabo Sweeney's the closest of those three. I mean, Clemson was not a national power before Dabo Sweeney got there and made them what they are. No, I agree with that. I, and I do think, and and that is an interesting discussion, but I do, it is a different discussion of which coach would you pick to take over Urban Meyer's success at Ohio State and continue it and build on it, which is a different discussion than if you were starting, starting a team from scratch. Right. So I guess to your point of Dabo has more evidence for that, for the actual question, I would buy that. But I think Dabo would be my answer to this question, because I think he's the one that we've seen take over a place that was kind of a very ordinary school, very ordinary football program and make them almost the gold standard. Like they were the the. The one B to Alabama there for that short period, and they've continued to be a national success. Are we excluding Nick Saban from this? Because there's been no sign that he's slowing down. No, we're not excluding him from okay, this. Okay, so I'm I, picking I, Nick Saban. Actually, but but I will say Bama's that sucks. is it's a very good answer. It's a very very good answer. I will Bama point out awful. that. But his his time at Michigan State was like not amazing. He got to LSU, won a national championship, and right. then has done what he did at, at Alabama. I think that's. I still think what Dabo did at Clemson is different than that. I just know Alabama was god awful before Nick Saban got there, and now we're sitting here talking about how unrealistic their dynasty is. A decade oh, later. 
it's definitely but but the the other wrinkle here is of the next decade so it's like it's yeah, how much yeah. you factoring in saving being already older than these guys and then getting even older to to quote they might be giants although but like the the um like when texas came after saban a couple years ago if you if they had hired if texas hired, had hired nick saban three years ago do you think texas would have a national title by now yes Three I think they years. probably would. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that yeah. recruiting ground? Oh, yeah. 100%. And Listen, those... Quinn Ewers is not at Ohio State right now if, if Nick Saban is at Texas. And, and it's also one of those things. Are we talking about like a bland like school that doesn't have that many built-in things? Or are we talking about a good program that does have some built-in things, whether it's tradition or recruiting geography or facilities or whatever? Because I also think those are two different things. I mean, like Chip Kelly – Oregon was nothing. And Chip Kelly practically invented a new way to play offense and made Oregon a national title contender. They were nothing. Now they had Phil Knight, which helps, right? But, like, that's not a bad now. But then, like, Chip Kelly couldn't sustain it, right? So I don't know. But I also think, like, I think Chip Kelly and Ryan Day is an interesting discussion because everybody else knows Ryan Day. Chip Kelly is his mentor. I don't know that I would want, like, Chip Kelly to take over for Urban, because I think Chip Kelly might want to do too much of his own stuff where I think Ryan day has done a very good job of maintaining what was good about urban and then building on things where he can be better than urban. And the result is this. So that's a, that's a different argument than who can turn NC state into a national title contender. But I might take like that era. Like again, for the next 10 years, I mean, Chip's not doing it right now, but if you gave chip like UCLA is a weird spot for him. They're not a football powerhouse, but they have a little bit of a name. I mean, if you put Chip Kelly again at like a totally kind of unknown football school and just let him mix it up again, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure he wouldn't be really good at that in version two of that. Yeah, maybe. Um, so to that to... point, um, with the Dabo Sweeney Alabama thing, are, are we? I mean, could we apply that to him? Because that's kind of the same logic there. If he were to take over for Nick Saban at Alabama. That's taking over a completely healthy program where you're just asking him to continue to do a lot of the things that Nick Saban was already having success with while at Clemson, he was starting from scratch. But Dabo, if Dabo goes to Alabama, he's not just going to continue what Nick Saban did because he's too established already. Fair. Ryan day was Ryan day was, had never been a head coach at any level before he was comfortable just sort of continuing a lot of the urban Meyer stuff. And I think he has navigated very well the line between like, I'm my own man, but I'm also smart enough to keep going. What's working. I, I mean, if, if that's what happens that when Saban retires, Dabo goes there, Dabo does not want to win at Bama by just doing Nick stuff. Dabo would want to go to Bama and win at Bama in the Dabo way. So I actually think it would not be at all like how Ryan took over for urban. So we're going to get back to culture talk in a minute. Um, here's another one, kind of a, a curveball from our friend Rick in Buffalo. Uh, since Doug keeps talking about his book, I'm wondering what book each of you thinks of writing related to your day job or not. Everyone fancies themselves an author, but you guys actually have the chops to make it happen. Well, thank you, Rick. We'd like to think we do. Doug, you are writing a book. As you mentioned before, it's a book about like Ohio State recruiting tales, basically. Like, Yes. It's like how... 15 to 18 Ohio State guys from the Woody era until now, their recruiting story of getting to Ohio State and sort of what they went through. So everybody's, it's like, it's just, it's like one of those Vignettes. books that's every chapter is its own standalone thing. Gotcha. 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, all of us had, um, obviously all of us have a writing background and I'm sure it, it's a thought that's coming to all of our heads. Mine would probably not be sports writing. Mine would probably be, um, you know, I was an English major in college. I, for a while thought about getting out of this business and going and getting like an MFA and teaching creative writing. So I'm, would maybe go that route. Um, it's, it's completely non-lucrative. And if you're going to do it, you basically have to go become a teacher and then write these books or short stories or whatever. I don't think I would write like mass market fiction, but, but who knows, it would probably be something along those lines. It would probably be some kind of fiction. Doug, you've talked about writing some kind of, what was your novel about? I, can't, uh, I keep giving away my plots of my, of my, my novels that have been in my head for 20 years. Um, I've got uh, two, two like written in my head. One about baseball and one about college football. That this this will be interesting to see if uh, this writing process shows me, dear God, this is not for you. You are a terribly procrastinating, unorganized ding dong. Writing this thing practically killed you. Never do it again. Or oh yeah, yeah, you can do it. So that I probably if I think I could do it, then I probably would try to do one of those. Uh, my college football novel is is done. It's done. It's in my head, but I don't know if people want to read that or not, but and I've talked about the book again. I think the book that is the urban, it's kind of structured around urban, but it's like the rise of the sec sort of at like the death of the big 10, the rise of the sec, and then the rebirth of the big 10. And it, it's like urban Meyer killed the big 10. And then he brought it back to life. Um, starting from like, the 2006 Ohio State Michigan game is the start when it's a one-two Ohio one-two Big Ten game. Ohio State's number one the whole year. They're going to win the national championship. It's like peak Big Ten of the modern era. Urban beats Ohio State. Saban's beats right behind him. Well, I mean, Urban beats Ohio State in the national championship. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. right. And then Ur Saban's right behind him. Here comes the SEC, and all of a sudden, a sudden, this world develops where the Big Ten can't compete. And then it takes Urban coming to Ohio State and then changing the recruiting and lifting Ohio State back up to bring the Big Ten back to that level. That little like eight year period of sort of tying the SEC and the Big Ten together, like sort of through Urban's experience. Um, I think there's something there. He's kind of busy coaching the NFL right now, so he'd have to cooperate with that. But uh, but I think that I, I've said that's that's still maybe out there, for, I think, possibly for somebody. Stephen, what are you writing? Right about Garrett Wilson. No, I'm joking. In all, <laughs> in all seriousness, I think that I think it Justin Fields would be an interesting book topic because of you know what he's been signifying for college football. And he's kind of the poster child for the, the new age of transfer portal and the one time transfer rule and a guy that highly rated who guys that highly rated can look at him and go, if it doesn't work out here for whatever the reason is, this is the world we live in now where you leave after your freshman year, you go somewhere else and you just have a career and no one thinks of him as a Georgia guy anymore. He's an Ohio as Doug wrote this morning and his NFL thing could, could Ohio State could a team of Ohio State alumni win a Super Bowl and how Justin Fields is literally just going to take over that role as the quarterback from Dwayne Haskins. The moment Roger Goodell says his name in April, I just think that's an, to, to center a, a transfer portal book and the age of the transfer portal, uh, the age of player movement in college football and center it around Justin Fields, experience and him telling his story of, you know, going into the portal. What's it actually like in the portal? Is it as boring? Is it more boring than we make it out to be? Is it actually a little bit more interesting? How similar it is to the recruiting process? Just everything about Justin Fields and centering that around a transfer portal discussion would be an interesting book. 
in so about actually, 25 she, years. Actually, should confess, I actually did write part of a book. You I wrote a book. a book. You wrote a book. Well, I was in the process of writing a book. There, write there's a, book a series. There's a series called "100 Things Such and Such Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die." The Ohio State version was written by I just looked it up. Someone named Andrew Buchanan, who I don't know. I've never met him. Do you know him, Doug? I don't. Okay. Um, and I was in the process of writing the Ohio, the Purdue version of that and was behind on it, frankly. And then I contacted them at the time I was taking this job to say like, Hey, I got a bunch of stuff going on. Like maybe I'm going to need a little extension. And they're like, we don't know how to market a book written about Purdue by an Ohio state beat writer. So how about we let somebody else finish this book? So we came to an agreement and that book is now available. If you happen to be a, the rare Purdue slash Ohio state fan, a hundred things Purdue fans, but um, so I have written a sliver of a book. I've written like a third of a book. Did you get cash for that or no? Then you get a, the way this works is you get like an upfront stipend. Well, you know, I mean, you're probably doing but this. They, so did get, they take it back because you didn't do that much or did you get to keep it? We had only, they only pay like one installment of it. The way it usually works is like you get something up front and you get more at the end. And because I didn't get to the end, I basically just kept what they gave me up front. So, and then there's also um, royalties that kick in after a certain point, but I don't know from talking to other people who've written this book. I, I don't know that you ever really get to that point. Cause it's not a book that sells that much, except maybe not will. Cause I've put it out. I'm going to get the Buckeye talk bump. What, what, uh, how many things, so the hundred things you have to do before you die, like how many did you do? Um, it's not, it's not, it's not all just experiences. A lot of them, it's like, there's a, it, cause it's no and do. So there's like a chapter in there about John Wooden. There's a chapter in there about, um, you know, Mike Allstott or whoever, you know what I mean? Like there's, it, so it's what not did you write? Did you write the Mike Allstott chapter? I honestly don't remember. I wrote several things, but it was, it's, it was bouncing all over the place. I mean, that was the thing. Like the whole point of that book was like, it was one chapter would be about Drew Brees. And then the next chapter would be about, Oh, you've got to go to um, here are the like places in town. You would go to eat. If you were in town for a, a Saturday football game, like here's where you, you know, you got to go to Harry's chocolate shop and you got to go to the triple X diner and that sort of stuff. Like every college town has that. So I'm sure that's what the Ohio state version is too. Like you have to go to uh, see Buckeye Grove, that kind of thing. I always wonder, there are those books, and I think, I mean, the, the publishers, I think, are smart about this, that the number one reason that they exist is for, like, mothers-in-law and cousins and stuff, like, to buy for sports fans in their lives when they don't know what else to get them for a present. I think it's a thousand percent what this book is about. Yeah. And as I think about my, this, my, my book's about too, but I mean, you know, so, um, but it's also good, but it's also good. But I'm just curious, like, did you do a lot of reporting for it? Or is it just like, no. hey, John Wooden played at Purdue. Everybody sort of knows that deal. I'm going to write a version of like what's kind of out there. It's a lot of aggregation and it was a lot of things. Fortunately, on my part, a lot of the stuff that I wrote, because I'd been a beat writer for the basketball team for six years and done some football reporting too, I had interviews that I had done that were just in my files from the past six years that I could go back and visit and repurpose those into content for the book. So that worked out well. I and didn't have to go do a lot of my own calls like you're having to do. Don't forget we did our little version of a book uh, on Ohio State's 2019 oh, yeah. season that we sent yeah, out to Texas. I've got two, yeah. So that, oh, that, that cool. borderline counts. Yeah. Cool. I've always been uh, intrigued by, uh, and I mean, plenty of people have done it, but the idea of like planning to do a book and then like just like reporting it as you are covering something, knowing I'm also going to write a book about this because it just makes it better. You, you absorb all the little things that I thought I signed. A, I think I've talked about this. I signed a contract for a book in 2008 
after Ohio State had, um, you know, lost the national title games in 2006 and 2007. And all those seniors came back in 2008, James Laurinaitis, Malcolm Jenkins, Brian Robisky, Alex Boone, Marcus Freeman. And I did like a huge story on the five of them. And it was like the story of why they decided to come back for this one last run. And in the course of like reporting that story was sort of like, you know what, like if this hits and it's like these guys who just fell short, they have the famous story. They're in the locker room after losing to LSU, the national championship game. And they're all kind of talking about, let's come back, let's come back. And they kind of all make the decision together to come back. If this pops and I'm planning to do it as it's happening, this could be a really good thing. So I actually signed a contract for that. And then they lost to USC 35 to three. And it was like, Oh no, that book's not happening. So, so that one, that one went down, uh, went down the tubes, but I, I've had book, I've had a book contract that never led to a book. So I, I will say that, that the idea of like a, uh, a John Feinstein, like under a uh, uh, season on the brink or whatever, or like, those kinds of books where you can like go in bed with the team for a full year. And maybe you don't actually do any reporting until after it's all done, which actually would get you more access. Right. Because teams don't want you like telling about secrets that are happening as it goes. There was somebody um, might've been Mark Monteith. Somebody did one of these books, kind of what you're talking about. That was supposed to be about like Purdue basketball. And I don't think the, the book ended up ever coming out, but like he was embedded with the team for like a full season like that, like on a day-to-day basis and being around meetings and stuff like that. And like that kind of book, getting to write that kind of inside book would be really fascinating to me. So that would maybe be the one kind of sports book I would be interested in doing. That would have been interesting this past season. Um, if you could have, you know, managed it health wise, if they had just allowed you to get testing yeah. every single day with the team and literally not see your outside family and you just have to, maybe they just set up a room in the Woody and you just live there the entire time that would have been it. Cause then you see every, it literally, it could have started from the moment everybody got back for the summer or whenever they actually all got back to campus and you can just have all these stories of, I remember a random Tuesday in July and, you know, Haskell Garrett tested positive that day. And so he was out for two weeks and people don't know about that. Cause I'm, I think Ryan Day mentioned that there were some guys who maybe tested positive early on in the summer before there was even the season was even close. And so you'd have all that information that you, especially if they would have won a national championship, it'd have been an interesting book. It's hard to commit to a thing like a season like that. Cause it's like, what if like the team's not interesting enough or this, the success mm-hmm. isn't at a level that to make people care about it, but you have to be committed to the idea of like, well, the experience of it and the behind the scenes stuff is so good. It's not beholden to the team succeeding. And that's really hard. I'm sure. And I'm sure there's multiple journalists that went in with the idea that we're going to get an NBA bubble book, that bubble experience with the NBA NBA and the fact that we're like a select handful of journalists or two handfuls of journalists that went and lived like that. And you end up writing about, and then it's like, Oh, and then LeBron won, which is great. But like, you're there, you're experiencing it. And it's one of those books that's sports, but it's also about the world and the pandemic and everything that would be, that would be really interesting. But I do think in today's day and age, I mean, season on the brink and it makes us old to talk about it's from the eighties. There's so much good sports writing now in the moment that back in those days, it's like people wrote like a game story, like covering a team's like, Oh, I, I, Joe Smith had seven play by play points game, and yeah. 11 rebounds. And it's like, all right, well, like, that other stuff wasn't getting out there. So much of that kind of behind the scenes, in the moment, real life emotion of the of the events 
comes out in the day-to-day journalism now that I think it makes it less attractive from a book standpoint. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, I, I knew that. Cause the really good beat writer that I care about the multiple really good beat writers that I care about covered it in the moment, wrote about it, put it on the internet. I don't need to read a book about it, but if you're writing, if you're reporting it with the idea of this is going to be for a book, that emotion that you feel in the moment is much more effective than, Hey, I, you know, after the fact, I went and called people and said, Hey, how did you feel in August when this happened? As opposed to it is August, it's happening. And I'm writing it down right now. And I'm talking to people in the moment and saving it. it's a much better book, but a lot of that stuff gets written right away. We're taking a break right there. We're going to come back and finish up with some, like I said, some culture talk and some feats of strength. We'll be back on Buckeye talk. All right, we're back on Buckeye Talk. As usual, more fire than rapid on our rapid fire segments. So we're going a little bit long today. Uh, we got several questions about this, and it kind of relates to the what we started this episode with um, in a way. And it just gets back to the discussion of race. And this has to do with Urban Meyer and the failed hiring of former Iowa strength coach Chris Doyle that the attempted to do with the Jacksonville Jaguars over the weekend. Uh, from the 561, I would love to hear what you guys think about Urban hiring Chris Doyle. What does it say about him as a leader? I feel like someone who just went through the Zach Smith thing would be wiser when it comes to making these sorts of hires. Uh, from the 614, does Urban Meyer's Chris Doyle fiasco indicate he's out of his depth in the NFL? And from the 813, where does Chris Doyle rank in the list of Urban Meyer hirings? Also, what did Steven get Garrett Wilson for Valentine's Day? But, sorry, that is a more serious topic than that. And I, I, enough people asked about it that I thought it was worth discussing because I, I think many of us had some questions about this adaptation of Urban Meyer to the next level. But I think it's an interesting way that multiple readers seem to have grasped on this as multiple texters, I should say, seem to have grabbed onto this as maybe evidence of a blind spot that Urban Meyer has had for a long time, right? That it's not necessarily a indication of him being out of his depth moving to the NFL, I think it may just be an indication of him not reading the room very well and acting accordingly. Agreed. I thought that, I mean, Urban Meyer clearly had a blind spot with Zach Smith in the Zach Smith situation. And I attributed much of that to the personal relationship that he had, that it's, Zach Smith, who is the grandson of Earl Bruce, who is Urban Meyer's mentor. And that that is what would lead to that. You just, you view things in a different light and it doesn't excuse it, but I thought that's why that happened. I thought this example of Chris Doyle, and again, for the background for people, again, that former 20 year Iowa strength coach who was, uh, who left Iowa um, last year after Iowa, after some reporting did a, an investigation of, um, racial bias in the Iowa football program and Kirk Ferentz survived and I'm not sure he should have, but the strength coach, Chris Doyle was the guy who lost his job over. It got a million dollar parachute to leave. And I do think, I mean, it's, I think it's indisputable that this is proof that urban's had a blind spot up until this point. If he doesn't learn from this and change, he's dead. You can't, I mean, this is inexcusable in the realities of the NFL in the realities of way of the way that sports and society have been evolving, even in the last couple of years, you can't do this. And, and 
a lot of people from the outside, I mean, the minute, the moment the hire was made was like, nope, that's not it. That's not going to last. That's not what you can or should be doing here. And I think in a world where Urban Meyer is a college football coach, and I was talking about this with people, I'm, if he had made the same hire, say he was still at Ohio State and Mickey Marotti retired and Urban Meyer hired Chris Doyle at Ohio State, I wonder how it would have gone. I wonder how much heat he would have gotten locally and nationally. And I wonder how much he would have been able to power through and say, like, fine, whatever the criticism is, it doesn't matter. I'm Urban Meyer. I'm like the most powerful person on campus, not just the most powerful person in the football program in the athletic department. And you power through and you do what you do and you don't bend to public public opinion, right? Even if it's the same kind of it's not right. But in the NFL, that's not how it works. Like the NFL is the NFL. And nobody like it's the so like that's not how it's going to go. A coach is not as individually powerful as you are in college football, because college football, there is no national structure. If you do something at Ohio State, the NCAA isn't like, hey, like this is making us look bad. It's like Ohio State's decision. The NCAA doesn't have any power or any say so in that. As long as you're not committing a violation, it's like, hey. But in the NFL, like it's just it's not going to fly. But also you're dealing with millionaires instead of teenagers. The world is changing. I couldn't believe he did it. Even if he had a blind spot, I can't believe there wasn't somebody around him that said, nope, we are not doing that. That's a failing. You have to surround yourself with people who are aware of your blind spot and don't let you make the mistakes that you are susceptible to making. So he doesn't have that person with him. So it was not good. This is his mulligan. And other people have said that. Like, I I do think with the way things have gone, why are we? Nathan, did you pick up? Did you pick questions that are going to be like, oh, let's find a couple questions that Doug can give an 11 minute rant about societal issues. That'll make everybody happy. Hey, it's happy Tuesday, everybody. Let's talk football. Here's what Doug thinks about society. We got tremendous questions this week, and you guys can both testify that I sent you other questions that people sent us because I thought they would be their own episode i didn't really think either of these questions actually the first one probably does but i felt like it was something we needed to address quickly but this one i didn't think deserved its own episode no you're right no I, but I it was an important it. thing but i thought it was enough i mean we got multiple it was probably the question we got the most since i put out that call on sunday so it can't happen it's it's a shortcoming and I don't, if he does another thing like this, and it's not about like what fans think, honestly, he has to coach that team. And this was not the right move on any level for that reality. And all you have to do is look at the former players in the media and how they reacted to this. I think he gets this one. I don't think he gets a two. Now, the other thing I was going to say is I do think at times we as a society can go too far with the person who is connected to the person who did the wrong thing, right? Chris Doyle doesn't deserve this job. Chris Doyle deserved to lose his job, but urban is not the same as Chris Doyle, right? Just like when people say something, I know the bachelor guy said dumb stuff about, what another bachelorette contestant had done and her behavior around insensitive and unacceptable racial behavior. 
he didn't do it. He was stupid and unacceptable in the way he commented on it. But I do think when you are a step removed, I think your punishment, it doesn't mean your behavior is okay, but I think your punishment to me is not exactly the same as the person who did the thing, right? That, and I think the Zach Smith situation was part of that. You know, Zach did what he did. Urban and Gene fell short in how they monitored Zach. Absolutely. But there's the behavior and there's how you punish the behavior or how you react to the behavior. And so this is an example of Urban made his own deal. Like Urban said, Chris Doyle then re- resigned because he didn't want to be a distraction to Jacksonville. Chris Doyle's not a distraction to Jacksonville. Urban is. Urban's the guy who decided to hire him. But Urban also didn't do the things that Chris Doyle was alleged to have done at Iowa. So I do think there's a slight difference there. But Urban, he can't do this. And I just am surprised that, not necessarily surprised at Urban's blind spot, but surprised that he didn't know better or the people around him didn't know better and allowed this to happen. Hasn't it, what's been eight months since Doyle was let go? And so then you patronize this and go, uh, we we vetted everybody. You vetted him so much that 24 hours after you announced his hiring, you had to he had to resign. You know, in, in air quotes, he had to resign. I didn't cover Zach Smith, so I don't know that situation. I don't know how he the hiring process or all that. I don't know what his character was outside out before that, but that seemed from the outside looking in of a situation that just happened, and he just happened. He he was on Urban Meyer staff already, and so that's where I think that applies because that's a guy who's on your staff who just happens to do something. So that he shouldn't be punished. Urban Meyer shouldn't have been punished for that. You knew what Chris Doyle was before you hired him. This is not the same. Even if you didn't do it, you. You didn't do it. You, you you didn't care enough to not put him on your staff and give him a million dollars. So I, I don't I don't see that the Zach Smith in this situation as the same. All right, let's get back to football from Andrew in the three three zero. Can you each give one player in this recruiting class you are excited to see, whether now or in the future? Right? They're talking about the twenty twenty one recruiting class, and what about them is interesting to you, other than Jack Sawyer, Trevion Henderson, or Kyle McCord? So take off like the 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 quarterback the stud running back and the, the, the big defensive end, like who else go deeper in this class? Who else really excites you? And you're excited to see in the future, Steven, who would be at the top of your list? I've kind of got two people, but it's for the same reason. It's Marvin Harrison jr. And Jaden Ballard, because they're kind of the same receiver. They're both taller, lankier receiver. They, the eye, they look, they have the eye test of a wide receiver basically. And I've seen Jaden Ballard play in person, but he didn't necessarily have the best quarterback talent around him and so you can't really get a real gauge of how good he is or isn't when he's got to come when he beats a guy off the line of scrimmage but then he's got to come back seven or eight yards every time to go get the ball so I'm interested to see now that he's got some quarterback talent around him what he looks like but with both of these guys I think about Ben Victor and how much of the eye test he passed when you just looked at him as a wide receiver but how much the the play didn't necessarily always match that and that's the last guy that they've had that's in that build that Marvin Harrison Jr. and Jaden Ballard are in and so now that they've got another guy of that build how that kind of develops and how they can use that guy and is that are they going to reach their potential in a way that I don't think Benjamin Victor did as a top 100 recruit Doug who's high on your list so I was trying to look at this um I guess he is similar in what to Wyatt Davis in a lot of ways but Donovan Jackson as the number one guard in the country Wyatt Davis also was the number one guard in the country the number 24 overall player in 2017 Donovan Jackson number one guard number 18 overall player uh in this class 
Ohio State's had some really good guards and and they've had some really athletic guards. And I think when you want to do interesting things in the run game, you need guys with good feet, right? You need real athletes at guard. I think Billy Price was a really good guard here and really allowed them um, to do some things. I think I think Pat Elfline was a good guard. Wyatt Davis has been a really good guard. I, I'm curious, but Wyatt took a little longer, right? I mean, like Wyatt just took a little, like maybe a rough first year, wasn't in the shape he needed to be right away, and then developed into this. We're so fired up about, you know, what Paris Johnson in year two is going to look like. I'm curious, what if Donovan Jackson, maybe not year one, but what if like in year two and year three, like Donovan Jackson is like as good of a guard as Ohio State's ever seen. And they've had a really good run of interior linemen here. So curious to see how he develops because it's just a little bit of a different skill set. The tackles get all the attention, but this guy seems like a, the kind of guy, Steven, right? Who, who, who maybe is a lineman who can be ready pretty quick and he might be good pretty darn quick. And I, and, and that really does some things I think for the Ohio State run game. I'm going to pick uh, similarly, like you're talking about how the tackles get all the attention and, and the guards sometimes don't. I feel like it's the same way on defense at the ends get a lot of attention and sometimes the tackles don't. And since I've been covering this team, you can really point to guys at tackle, whether it's Davon Hamilton, whether it's Haskell Garrett and Tommy Togia last season, um, Jay Sean Cornell, like those guys have been making a difference. And I, I'm intrigued by just what Mike Hall's ceiling is going to be. He comes in as the number 52 player in this class, but he was a late riser relative to some other guys. Like his recruiting surge up the rankings came a little bit later. Sometimes I trust that a little bit more. I think there's guys who sometimes get an early ranking and then there's a little bit of confirmation bias that builds in, especially if they end up signing at a place like Ohio state. I I think sometimes when a guy maybe later in his career um, kind of, puts it in people's face and like demands to be paid attention to that that resonates with me a little bit. And I'm intrigued how quickly he can make an impact here. And if it's by year two, is he someone who becomes like a multi-year starter in the middle of that defense? And uh, because we've already projected what could be coming at the, from the edges of this defense, especially if they get JT to and how pairing him with Jack Sawyer could mean, but my call in the middle of that seems like he could be just as critical to how good this defense is in 2022-2023. I like it. I think those are all good answers. Um, finishing up from the 706, who wins in an arm wrestling match, Steven or Nathan? Me. Next question. Have you arm wrestled before? <laughs> yes. Have you ever arm wrestled? See, I'd, I was wondering if, like, does our generation or this next generation, because I feel like arm wrestling was like a thing when Doug and I were growing up, not that we were like arm wrestling, but I felt like it was just like part of the, of like uh, popular culture in a way. Like there was even, what was the name of that movie? You know what I'm talking about, Doug? There was like a whole movie about yeah. arm wrestling. Sylvester Stallone was in it, right? Yeah. Over what was that called? Or something? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Was that what it was called? <laughs> um, and, but like now I feel like I don't even know if, if people from Steven's generation even know about arm wrestling. It's interesting. Do you know the rules of arm wrestling? Like, yeah, uh, they require me to win by nothing. So, yeah, he uh, has see, an I... arm. Has an arm. I think that's all that Steven feels like he needs. Yeah, I mean, there's was... not a lot to learn about <laughs> arm wrestling. It's literally you you lock arms and you just push. Uh, over the top has a a strong thirty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So everyone, get out on your. Uh, your Amazon Prime or go down to your local Blockbuster and, and rent that. Um, 
I think Steven might win on arm wrestling. He's got, you know, whatever it is, like 20, 25 years on me right now um, as he's uh, getting through his sophomore year of high school or however young he is. Um, I, I do like my I do like my chances at thumb wrestling better, though, because that's, skill. it's it's so much it's it's a lot more skill. It's yeah. a lot. It's a lot more about craftiness. It's about, you know, if you've got a referee there. Um, keep making sure that your your hand is on the table at all times. And you're not bending your hand in illegal ways. So I, I think it would probably be, I'll give you arm wrestling, but I'm taking thumb wrestling. I think I would probably win out there. I'm, I'm ready to referee. Let me know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a Let's shame because of COVID first. we can't, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, we can't be in the same room together to, to, to decide this once and for all. Also, can we, virtually, can we do it virtually? No, like we each get we each get like an arm wrestling robot that like measures how how well we do and then compare those scores. No, not at all. Because I'm just going to have my roommate who's six foot four and 240 pounds sit down and do it and turn. We're going to turn the camera off so you don't know it's him. Uh, also, I I think at some point in, in the name of me and Nathan doing things against each other, I think we need to rehash our spring game draft because I think I won in the long term when we look at how some of these guys actually played, especially when we did our rankings of the, of the guy who was like the best player, not named Justin Fields. I think more of the guys on my team were higher on that list. Interesting. Feel free, feel free to do that in one of the pods when I'm not here. <laughs> uh, the, the great thing about that is uh, there's another spring game coming up. So I think what is more intriguing is we just do another draft and I beat you at that one as well. And we don't have to worry about what happened in 2019. Or Still taking Garrett first. So oh, I bet you are. What did you get Garrett for Valentine's Day? I, um, or does the restraining order preclude you in my many gifts? So I thought about sending him, in the name of he's already got a picture of the Clemson catch from last year. I was going to send him a picture of the Clemson catch from this year, especially since it was one of only two catches he had in the entire game before he just – kind of faded to the shadows and let Chris Olave have 100-plus yards and Jamison Williams catch a 42-yarder. So I thought about sending him that. Um, we follow each other on Twitter, so I could have DM'd him and just been like, hey, do you want this? And he would have been like, hey, I'm unfollowing you now. I like the idea of, like, Steven sending Garrett Wilson a gift that, like, makes him ineligible for two games. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. we have to report on it. Yeah, that would be great. Um, that wraps up today's rapid-fire edition of Buckeye Talk. Coming back Wednesday with the big – Wednesday episode and it's the long awaited desert Island episode, right? Doug, we're going to do the quarterback running back wide receiver pick them. We're yep. going to do the quarterback running back wide receiver draft among the three of us. And we're also going to do our desert Island. What is it? Book movie celebrity. I think that's right. I gotta, I gotta, it's, it, this is all, these are things based on uh, texter suggestions from last May. When we had oh, wow. started okay. um, pandemic the, stuff, the five day a week podcast, and we were looking for topics. So, yeah, but the main thing is from the last 20 years, like in the 2000s, picking a quarterback or running back and three receivers to make your best offense. So, I think that'll be fun. And then we'll talk Desert Isle. So, if you have not responded, I think there's a text survey about this, right, Doug? Yeah, I'll send it back out to the texters. We've gotten okay. good response so far. It's tough because it's, you know, and it's a rank question. And again, for you guys who aren't texters, we're really, moved with some of these surveys towards ranking rather than saying like, Hey, here's 21 receivers, pick one. And it's like, well, everybody picks Michael Thomas or whatever, right. That we are ranking things. And so then like, it's kind of fun. It's like, all right, well, 
am I ranking like Devin Smith higher? Am I ranking Chris Olave higher, right? That gets fun, but it's also work. So sometimes those surveys, we don't get quite as much instantaneous response because we really make you think, but it's really interesting to get inside the minds of Ohio State fans, all this stuff. So I'll send a reminder on that. So look for that. It probably will have already arrived for you actually by the time you hear this. So if you if, if you participate, we appreciate it. 614-350-3315 gets you all of those texts, uh, not just the news that we send out and the analysis we send out, but also gets you in on projects like that to help us bring you Buckeye Talk five days a week. So look forward to that. I'm Nathan Baird. He was Doug Maurice, and he was Stephen Means. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>